Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The news in the morning, uh, Morgan Stanley with its uh, earnings report and its uh, beat on FIC. And, of course, this is a company that does rely more on trading with their Morgan Stanley uh, brokerages. Brad Hintz is with us from uh, New York University. And, uh, of course, he's been a longtime analyst of the banks at uh, Sanford Bernstein and uh, before that was a, a CFO. So he knows these numbers. Brad, uh, the story at Morgan Stanley, and you're better at us than digging into all this stuff, but the story at Morgan Stanley so far seems to be pretty much the same as we've seen at the other banks. They're making money on trading, particularly bonds. Uh, go figure. You know, the rest of the business is coming in okay, plus they're holding down costs. Uh, it seems like uh, everybody's holding down costs, but the thing that is is helping everyone is that trading has returned over uh, the past couple of months. Yeah, Brexit actually was, has been uh, has been good for uh, for government bond trading uh, and uh, and certainly for foreign exchange. Now, you know, Morgan Stanley foreign exchange is going to be less of a, uh, a contributor than, than than the government bond trading. But remember, uh, Gorman has de-emphasized the, the the FIC business, and we've seen Morgan Stanley cut back and cut back. So it's very impressive that they're getting this kind of performance. It means that he's got a lean, mean fixed income business, and I think that's lean, actually mean, where fixed we're, income <laughs> machine. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's I think that's where all these banks want to go, and and that's very good news. The the challenge that that we have going forward is, you know, low interest rates are certainly not good for 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 these these banks. A uh, slow economy is certainly not good for for these banks, and 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 the fact that we're seeing a slowing investment banking business, you know, this is a better quarter than last quarter, but but again, the the investment banking cycle tends to be tied to GDP. So if you're if you don't have a, a booming economy, you're not going to get that. So you know the the outlook remains. Let's keep the cost down. And so you know you've hit on the theme. Costs are important. well. I mean, uh, just looking at uh, their headline here, second quarter non compensation expenses were down eight percent. That's the universal among all of the banks these days is with interest rates so low, you've got to just cut, cut, cut. That's right. That's right. And remember, the banks are – they're not quite there yet, but the money that they were expending to build the regulatory infrastructure – they're kind of getting at the end of that. They've met the needs of the regulatory changes that were put in. So now you can see them, you, some of the expense controls begin to flow in. Because remember, at the same time they were cutting back over the last eight years, they also had to be building on the, on, on, on the regulatory side, on the compliance side. Compare and contrast Morgan Stanley with Goldman Sachs. They're two venerable names. There's a difference, though. There's a distinction tick by tick within the cultures of the two. What's the difference? We can think of it more from the strategy point of view. The, the culture at Morgan Stanley changed with the merger and Dean Witter. Uh, so the old Morgan Stanley investment banking culture is long, long gone. What they do have is they have a, the, the merger with, with Dean Witter add to that the Smith Barney. The wealth management business 
is nearing Gorman's targets, right? He wants it to be that offset to the institutional yeah. business, and that's really important. And he's he's done that. He's changed well, it. Okay, he's, got with, a, he's got a different animal. Than then when the gossip of it and a different animal precisely is you just went through the heritage of um, Dean Winter and all the challenges that were made there, Mr. Gorman coming in and saving the day. Compare that with Payne Weber and UBS. <laughs> Totally different train wreck, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, the uh, What you've seen with UBS was an underperforming wealth management business that has been turned around, right? So if we if we think of the management team that, that was there, there, that is there, actually, they've, they've improved the performance. They still have a scale issue. And there's the, the, there's the challenge they face, which is there are three big wire houses, and then there's a fourth. Yeah, and Mike, to me, the scale, the word scale, which Professor Hintz teaches at NYU, in, he does it scale Tuesday. Every Tuesday they talk about scale. That's the challenge. That's the hard thing to do. Well, the, the question that comes to my mind, of course, is when you look at all these banks, and Tom brought off brought up uh, UBS and uh, Credit Suisse, not just to pick on the Swiss, but everybody, Barclays doing this, everybody wants to be wealth managers these days. Is there enough revenue for everybody to do that if everybody's piling into the same uh, business strategy? Well, you, you've you've hit on a on a good good point on that one too, which is you know the what do the wealth managers, what do the wirehouses control? They control the one to three million dollar account size in the United States. That's a powerful sector, right? And the the scale, which Tom mentioned, very important because if you look at client assets under custody, the client assets, and you look at pre tax margins of the wealth management, beautifully correlated, just beautifully correlated, which says you get bigger, you generate greater profitability. Now on the on the other hand, the, lo- the clients belong to the to the, the wealth managers themselves. So you're running this this very <clears throat> difficult business of trying to keep the best wealth managers together, and it's so that you keep the scale up so the performance delivers. Mike and I have been watching the pro with the official Sanford Bernstein pen he stole on his last day at Bernstein, <laughs> watching Professor he's underlining Hintz. stuff. He's going he's just going it. right like... through the press release. And as you and I both noted, that was the first thing I mentioned on air. 22% margin on wealth management. You and I know double digits unacceptable. You want to get up to 16 cents, 18 cents, 20 cents on the dollar. This has been Gorman's religion. As Mike mentioned earlier, wealth management to the rescue. Can everybody do 22 cents on the dollar no. in asset management? No, the, the pre-tax, it's a scale issue totally. And so if you, if you don't have the scale in wealth management, you, you have a really real challenge in terms of, of building the business. Your, your observation about everyone wanting to get into it, yeah, it's a good business because the, because the money is very sticky. You have a broker, your fees are coming out of your account all the time. And so that's, you know, that, that's a very good business for the, for, for, for the banks to be in. And you control a channel. And that channel provides value when you're selling products through that channel. So it, if you control the channel, you can make money from both the, the makers of the products and the end users of the products. So, you know, it's a, it, it's a very good strategy. The problem is if every bank wants to do it, the price of those wealth managers goes up. Right. And you then begin the, the problem of wealth managers moving from among the big four and then going off and becoming our. But, Mike, but Mike, I'm sorry, that is endemic to the entire business. You want to keep 15 percent of the warm bodies across all pay scales. Yeah, well, not just banking, any business. You know, you're always trying to keep yeah. the, the top performers and you got to pay up for that. Uh, I want to go to another 
personnel issue within the banks. You mentioned before the break, Brad, that the era of hiring all kinds of compliance people and the added costs are coming to an end in terms of um, a, a percentage contribution to well, it'll be a net uh, decline, a net uh, uh, takeaway from the bottom line. That's coming to an end. And we're looking at banks like Morgan Stanley making much better than expected earnings. Are the complaints from the bank management over now that the government is strangling their ability to make profits? Well, I don't think it's a, a good if if your if your master is the government. I think you have to be very careful about what you say to them. But uh, <laughs> the whole idea of Dodd Frank killing off the banking industry or making it into a utility doesn't seem to be uh, actually happening. Uh, remember, we're celebrating eight and ten percent ROEs as a victory. That would not be viewed as a victory uh, ten years ago, would it? No, but I mean, right now, uh, GE has got a 7.3% ROE. So, you know, if if you're doing as well as GE, it's not terrible for shareholders. Well, no, no, it's it, not thirty nine or forty percent. It it it, the it isn't. Is, but you know, let's let you know. Remember, we've got a group of of, of of players out there who don't have large balance sheets. The boutiques, right? They've taken market share from the from the big banks. So you know, we're regulation has has hurt the banks really in terms of their performance. I think we should recognize that. On the other hand. It's tremendously improved their financial strength. The, you know, the, the creditworthiness of the banks is better than it's been in decades. So we should all buy their bonds. You, you need to calculate return on risk, not just return well, on Well, that's equity. true. Yeah, it's almost like a sharp ratio for the business. Lazard, 3,000 employees. Morgan Stanley, 54,000 employees. J.P. Morgan, 240,000 employees, and that goes to your idea of scale, and yet you just said the boutiques are taking market share with that intellectual brain power. How much is there to cut at 54,000 Morgan Stanley or 240,000 J.P. Morgan? Well, you're comparing two different animals, right? I agree with that. There's right? three different you know, three the, different animals. Lazard, Evercore, Green Hills, Morgan Stanley, all of Goldman those boutiques, Sachs, right? and then the big banks. You know, you've got, you know, the, what you have is you have established <clears throat> investment bankers whose clients belong to them who can walk over to those boutiques right. and, gen, and and bring money with them. It, they well, don't use okay, balance Excuse me, but Mike, one of the important things is if you run a boutique, you have to be a Red Sox fan. <laughs> That's Mr. Altman. Very important. <laughs> Very important. I got a quick political question since we got the Republican convention on these days. The Republicans, like the Democrats, have now adopted a platform uh, plank, and Donald Trump's endorsed it, saying that we should bring back Glass-Steagall. 1935, uh, you know, uh, Henry Morgan and Harold Stanley take Morgan Stanley out of J.P. Morgan Company because of Glass-Steagall. Would that do anything? Sure. To bring back gas, glass uh, steagall I mean, investment ba- separating investment banking from retail banking any anymore is that an issue? Well, it I I don't see that I don't see that happening. But it, what would it do? I mean, we're seeing it to an extent in in the in the growth of the boutiques, right? I mean, the the boutiques are an, a, a part of the capital markets business that are that are sort of outside the banking world. Mm-hmm. And and you know, if we if we were were to separate it. I guess what you have to do is you have to look at the at, at the the capital markets businesses of the banks and what kind of returns they would get. I'm not certain they would get great returns at this point. And I think a real question would be, are they um, how do they finance themselves? Okay. I mean, they need the deposit bases at this point to keep themselves Brad, going. Generous of you, Professor, to be with us today. I hope we got at least a C minus. Brad Hintz, 
is with New York University. Michael, if you go north, above the Green Mountains, there's Canaan. No, not biblical. (laughs) There's Canaan. And there's the Canaan Street Lake. There's Cardigan Mountain School. If you go down Back Bay Road and down Fernwood Farns Road, there's a Republican going, when will they talk about policy? Well, actually, he's not there right now. As I understand it, John Sununu, former senator from New Hampshire, has uh, migrated west to Cleveland, where the Republican Party... It's not talking about policy. Is what they're talking about, uh, just about everything but. Um, he is attending the Republican National Convention in Cleveland. And uh, welcome, uh, Senator. W- what What is happening there right now? We, we've heard lots of pleas for unity. Uh, we've heard uh, the Republicans have officially nominated Donald Trump. And yet you got a big story in Politico today saying there is a parallel convention going on as people like you, uh, all the Republican power brokers from years past have been gathering in small and large groups trying to figure out how to move beyond all this and put the party back together after November. Well, good morning. First, I'm no power broker uh, and I haven't been part of any uh, secret side meetings. Look, I, this is a convention uh, where Donald Trump will be nominated. Uh, obviously, the party wants to talk about the policy, and we can talk more about that. I, I do think that's important. But also, uh, Donald Trump wants to define himself as he wants the voters to think about uh, this election. And look, there has been some, some serious policy talk. Rudy Giuliani on national security, Paul Ryan on, on his vision for America. We're going to hear from Mike Pence tonight, uh, you know, the vice presidential pick who ran the Republican Study Committee, sort of a serious conservative policy group within the House of Representatives. Uh, He's governed in Indiana uh, for four years, helped bring that state back. Uh, So I think there'll be plenty of policy over the next two nights. It is important. And and look, there are a lot of distinct differences between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton when it comes to expanding government or cutting taxes or or making sure that America is kept safe. And, you, and uh, I do think those deserve to be discussed. Do you think that we'll hear any policy talk from Donald Trump, who has uh, given us lots of slogans but no coherent uh, platform or policy yet? Uh, you know, uh, you got to be candid. Yeah, getting into the details of policy is not a Donald Trump strength. But, but I think where he can be strong is in putting forward those leaders uh, that he will put in a position of defining policy, executing policy, and helping uh, as chief executive to lead the country. And, and look, someone like a Rudy Giuliani is a good example of that. Someone like Paul Ryan or Mike Pence are good examples of that. Uh, Ted Cruz is going to speak. And, and obviously he's got a strong uh, conservative vision that speaks to a very important uh, base of the Republican Party. So, uh, you know, as commander-in-chief, I, I don't think Anyone would mistake uh, Donald Trump for some sort of an intellectual, uh, you know, conservative art laugher on taxes or anything like that. But the strength of leaders that I've known uh, comes from their ability to recruit uh, great people to help them get the job done. Uh, from what I understand, he doesn't even agree with his vice presidential running mate in a lot of conservative positions. But I'm curious. Uh, have you met him? Have you had a chance to talk with him? A lot of reports are that he isn't particularly interested in policy and doesn't study up on it. 
I, I, I can't speak to that. And, and unless you've had a conversation with him, it's probably not a, a fair characterization. I've met him, um, but only very briefly. So, uh, um, look, I, I've seen him on the campaign trail. He, he's, uh, he's captivating. He's unique. He wasn't my candidate. Uh, I'm a case here as a Kasich delegate. Uh, you know, we were in a great campaign, very proud of, of the governor. And John Kasich, is, he is a different kind of person. You know, he's a conservative. He's got taxes, he's balanced budgets. But uh, he, he's the kind of leader that's yeah. uh, that been able to solve problems and bring people together. And that, more than anything else, moving out of the convention is, I think, what Donald Trump needs to do. If you want to win the presidency, you need to win independence across America. Yeah, well, the independence is the undecided voter. Senator, I say this with great respect. Somebody just out on Twitter said... They were amazed how I had tried to avoid the snark. I'm going to try to avoid the snark with you. Your father and your grandfather came here. I guess they walked around or over the wall. Your father's an honorary advisor to the U.S. Azerbaijani Chamber of Commerce. You've got a heritage here three generations deep. Would your father, as a young guy in New Hampshire, out of MIT, with all he was doing in engineering at Tufts, would he have supported the modern Republican Party? Well, if, you, if you're saying Donald Trump is the modern Republican Party, then the answer is probably not, because he, he, I don't think, you know, I didn't support Donald Trump in the primary. I, my father didn't support Donald Trump in the primary. But look, I think uh, the modern Re- Republican Party is also people like Paul Ryan, John Thune, Bob Corker, John Kasich. Uh, these are people who are great friends of mine. I think they're terrific leaders. Mm-hmm. So I think you're making a mistake if you if, okay. you if you throw out one issue or one person and try to use that right. specific to characterize the entire party. Okay, I'll it's go got to be a broad, inclusive party if we're going to win. Mike, note Greg Vellier's note this morning where Vellier at the bottom of the note is already talking about 2020. Do you think Sununu's name should be on that list, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Everybody uh, else's name on, will Tom, be. Tom, really? Look, yeah. I, I, there are people. People always are looking Democrats and Republicans looking four years uh, in the future. Don't think for a moment the people whose names are on Hillary's vice presidential list aren't thinking. Well, this will be good for me in 2020, depending on what happens in the presidential election. Look, that's the way politics works. And it's it's nothing vicious or underhanded, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, to look toward the future. And, and you know, there are some people who, who always are looking for their next job. Frankly, those people make me a little nervous. I want people who come to lead, solve a problem. And when they get the job done, they go home. One of the things I love about John Kasich, he went to Congress, he said he was going to balance the budget. He helped lead the effort to balance the budget. He retired. He left Congress and went to the private sector. That, to me, is what uh, public service really should be. John Sununu, former senator from New Hampshire, thank you for joining us today from Cleveland. And hopefully uh, you'll get a little cooler weather. I know it's been hot and sticky there as it has been here in New York. It's never that way in New Hampshire. Mike, I want you to bring in David Stockton because I think you're a lot more familiar with this. But within his prodigious history is his phrase, the forecasting capability, which is the heart of what we do every day. I mean, it's the 
the blood going through the circulatory system, isn't it? Well, that's the question that has been raised by a number of people this week. When you look at what's going on in the economy and when you look at what's going on in the markets, and they don't seem to square, you wonder about the forecasting capability, whether the models work, and what do you do if you're not sure? Dave Stockton used to uh, help run the computer models at the Federal Reserve as director of uh, statistics and as uh, research and statistics is the official term at the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. He's now with the Peterson Institute. The the Fed, anybody who follows the Fed knows they have a sophisticated model of the economy called FERBUS, for Federal Reserve Board of the United States. And yet, a lot of people question whether it's giving you the kind of data that enable you to make good forecasts of what policy should be these days. Well, any forecast at this point in economics is going to be some combination of uh, science and art. And there's a lot more art than science, I think, at this point. Uh, I think the Fed's models obviously provide some guidance about empirical regularities that uh, one sees in the data. But uh, our ability to predict is pretty limited. And you can take a look at the Fed publishes in the back of their uh, summary of economic projections some confidence intervals around these forecasts. And they're pretty darn wide. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that uh, we're still pretty limited in our ability to predict events, especially ones that uh, we haven't seen before. If that's the case, does that justify then sort of the the Fed's reluctance to do anything? Are they operating sort of on um, the old uh, principle of first do no harm? Well, I think that's uh, certainly one reason why uh, the Fed would be reluctant to act aggressively at any point and why they probably have uh, been as cautious as they've been about this process of normalization is they're just uncertain about what the economy is going to do, but also how the economy will respond to their actions. And I think in that kind of an environment, you move slowly, test, see what the the consequences are of your actions, and then probe further, uh, you know, once you gain a little bit more confidence. Well, I, I look, David, at, at where we are, and of course the um, the Bullard uh, research piece we talked about that earlier with Chris Lowe, folks, on regime change. Part of this is the belief of the plug-in numbers within the theory and models that our good governor, presidents, and chair have. Are we working in a new regime? Even if Jim Jim Bullard's talking about going to a new regime, is the fact is we're operating our central banks in a new regime because things are so distorted? So I think that would probably be uh, an exaggeration. I think, you know, the economies change over time. Uh, Certainly we've been in an extraordinary period where interest rates have been pinned at zero and and central banks have been employing a variety of unconventional measures to stimulate economies. We still kind of understand that, uh, you know, long-term interest rates affect borrowing uh, and spending, that the same thing goes with uh, increases in household wealth or improvements in the housing sector. So there are some, it isn't all just pure uh, guesswork here, and we're not completely ignorant, but uh, I think the point that uh, Jim Bullard's making is that sometimes there are some big events that uh, come along, and maybe we've shifted from a moderate growth uh, regime to a very low growth regime, and maybe we should just expect that to persist. I don't think the evidence yet warrants that, but it's clear we've been in a long period where there's been a secular decline in interest rates and uh, considerable disappointment in the productive potential growth of the U.S. economy and the other advanced foreign economies. So I think certainly one should entertain the possibility uh, that we'll be in this uh, period for a considerable period, be in this low-growth equilibrium for a considerable period of time. 
I'm not quite sure I'd expect to be here and then all of a sudden shift to a high-growth uh, regime at some point in the future, and I certainly wouldn't know how to predict when that would, would occur. Um, I think what we'll more likely see is gradual repair of some of the damage that's been done in recent years and a gradual improvement in growth going forward and a, and a gradual return, and one thinks about technological progress, to sort of more historical averages from the very slow pace that we've had since mm-hmm. the start of the Great Recession. Would you endorse Jim Bullard's uh, idea that you shouldn't even bother to contribute to the dot plot now because you can't give forward guidance? Well, I mean, I recognize that the dot plot is obviously a pretty uh, fraught device for uh, c- communicating policy expectations, but I actually think I wouldn't abandon the dot plot at this point. I think it is important for the Fed to communicate as part of its forecast process what underlying policy, what policy underlies the forecast that they're presenting to the public, simply to present forecasts of GDP growth and unemployment and to say nothing about the policy that you think might produce right. those things is a very partial partial exercise. I, I think the Fed could probably improve the presentation of these forecasts by perhaps having each participant provide a linked set of forecasts of their own views about inflation, unemployment, GDP growth, and interest rates, so that market participants and the public could sort of see how they're thinking things are going to evolve over time. David Stockton with us, not Stockman, critic of the Fed. David Stockton of the Peterson Institute, a strong, strong supporter of the Fed with his heritage there. Uh, among other things, the Division of Research and Statistics. And I love this. Instructor and lecturer at Yale and at Trinity. Did you ever instruct or lecture on the phrase ultra-accommodative? Have we ever been as ultra-accommodative as we are now? When I was uh, at Yale in the late 1970s, it was ultra-tightened policy, not ultra-loose policy. So uh, my career was sort of bookended by uh, a period of of extreme austerity in monetary policy to a period of extreme uh, accommodativeness. So uh, I think this is more recent language uh, beyond my uh, my teaching days. Uh, But clearly we are at a period uh, where policy has obviously been pushing as hard as it can to try to, to move the economy and move the Fed back to its dual mandates of uh, price stability and uh, maximum employment. Uh, How accommodative are we? We, We've had different people on the show this week already suggesting that uh, the Fed is maybe not quite as accommodative as they would like to be. So I think the Fed probably uh, has things just about right currently. If you look at what's been going on, we've seen... Uh, unemployment rate down below 5%, somewhere in the neighborhood uh, of the uh, full employment. Uh, I don't think there yet, quite frankly. I think there's still some slack in the labor market. And we've seen the inflation rate, which uh, core inflation would have been running around one and a quarter, is now moving back up to one and three quarters, maybe a little bit above. So they're making progress towards their uh, dual mandate. And that probably suggests they've had policy set just about right. I think the more important question is going forward. You know how much, uh, how fast does this process of normalization need to proceed? And I think it's going to be a pretty slow process. So you're not in the camp that suggests that we're seeing bubbles develop or distortions in the markets that need to be cured by a rate increase or two. 
I don't think we're there yet, no. Um, I, in fact, think that uh, that's probably not the case. Uh, it's possible that equities are, are getting a little richly valued, but it doesn't feel like a bubble in the sense that people buying those assets and expectations that their price can only go up at this point. Uh, and I think the bigger issue is, in fact, to get inflation back to 2%, the Fed's target, and to make sure that they're made progress on the uh, full employment prospects. And while we've certainly gotten much closer on both those objectives, we're still not there. So I think the Fed can proceed slowly. I do think the process of normalization is going to proceed. The markets mm-hmm. right now have an expectation of a Fed on hold too right. long, and that is going to be disappointed ultimately uh, by, by some yeah. Fed tightening as we move through the year. Dr. Stockton, from your area of forecasting capability, can you forecast the outcomes of helicopter money? However, you, I'll let you define it. And then do we know what will happen when? So, I mean, if one thinks of helicopter money as being fiscal policy that is financed with debt that is purchased by the central bank so that there could be no possible effect on interest rate increases, I think that is obviously going to be stimulative. And I think we would be able to estimate those effects uh, with sort of conventional models. I think it raises more complicated questions about the relationship of an independent central bank to the government and to the fiscal authorities. Mm. I certainly would not have central banks themselves making decisions about helicopter money. I would have that definitely be in the realm of the uh, the elected government and the the fiscal authorities. Do you think this is something that would work? I mean, in in theory, it does, but we've seen that a lot of theory doesn't always translate to practice. So I think in really dire circumstances, ones that we're not currently in, for example, if we were to hit some sort of significant global recession in the next couple of years when the interest rates were still pinned at zero, you know, I think just as we experimented with unconventional policies, I think something like a uh, money-financed uh, fiscal stimulus could be considered, but it's it's got dangers. It's got dangers not only in terms of uh, unintended effects that might have unintended consequences, as well as I think political effects of giving policymakers uh, in Congress uh, or in the White House a sense that gee, this is really great. We can actually, you know, this is just print money and spend it. Uh, so I would be reluctant to move in that direction outside of a truly uh, more dire situation. David Stockton, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with the Peterson Institute. Mike, you mentioned gold. I had uh, someone call me up, Matt from New Jersey, and said, look at gold. So I'm looking at gold. And on a daily chart, it is sitting precisely on the support that I use. Precisely. 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 And I would suggest, and this is just one view of one setup, it's neither long or short. It is soup, as I call it. It's indeterminate. I can't tell which way it's yeah. going. Uh, either can I tell which way the dollar's going. Axel Merck spends a lot of time thinking about this with Merck Investments. Axel, a lot of people are sort of mixed about dollar. They're ambivalent, but I would call the tendency to stronger dollar. Can you make any here or there of it, given the immense distortions within our financial system? 
I, I think, I mean, one, one has to dissect it a little bit. Emerging markets are kind of easy in the sense that emerging markets are mostly gauges of liquidity. Um, the Japanese are trying to make it easy to us with the two-thirds majority. They're going to do helicopter money, and the yen is going to go down the drain. Um, the, the one that, that's kind of the difficult one to crack is the euro, because the euro never does what you want it to do. Um, Draghi always wants it to go down. We always say everything is great in the U.S., everything is horrible in Europe. And, and sure, now the euro is around 110, but it's just done difficult to weaken the euro. Um, and, and so it depends a little bit on, on, on where you're looking. But the, the thing is, we've been told for years the dollar is going to go through the roof. And ever since we started raising rates, the dollar hasn't been able to reach new highs. What do you think the dollar does from here? Because we're at uh, the dollar index over 97. That was sort of the February level when we were all worried about how high the dollar was going to go. Then it came back down. Does it continue to rise now or does it hold where it is? Well, my view is that we are near the top of the interest cycle in the U.S., and we are near the bottom of the cycle in Europe. And that obviously sounds counterintuitive, since we're talking about yet another rate hike. But it's just darn difficult to get real rates up in the U.S. And in Europe, how on earth are you going to lower rates further from where they are? You're already destroying all the markets and causing tons of distortions. And so obviously we have Draghi beat it tomorrow. He's going to try to jawbone the year lower and talk about this amazing interest rate differential. I, I just don't see that interest rate differential. Um, if, if we were to have high real interest rates in the U.S., this economy would falter. And so the Fed is going to do what it's best at. It's going to stay behind the curve. And yet we have this perception that, the, that we are so far ahead in the U.S. And because of that, we have priced a lot of good news into the dollar. And that's, I think, why historically um, the dollar rises in anticipation of rate hikes. But when they actually come, um, the data isn't clear at all. And that's why ever since, I mean, versus the G10 anyway, the dollar reached its peak, I believe. And, and so I think it's going to be very, very difficult for the dollar to, to really rally from here. Well, if it doesn't rally from here, then the Fed doesn't have anything to worry about. They can raise rates. Right. Well, they have plenty to worry about. I mean, that's what they do. They worry about everything, anything, because they don't have a clear picture. Now, do keep in mind, moving from the dollar here a little bit, um, oil prices year over year are flattish. Um, that means this excuse of disinflationary forces is, is kind of gone. Um, and that means inflation numbers are going to tick a little bit higher. And so the Fed is going to have more more reasons to, to say, oh, we got to raise rates. And, and sure enough, once they do it, um, what's going to happen is um, the market is going to have a fit again, and, and they're going to paddle away from it. And the reason why every time the Fed has to step back is because what central banks ultimately do, they compress risk premia. That means that risk assets, including equities, move higher. And then when they take a step back, volatility comes back and asset prices come down. And, and so a Fed that doesn't really have a clear concept of what it wants to do is, is just going to be whacked by its tail, by the market, and is going to take a step back. So as the markets are, are fine right now, Jan Bialen is going to say again, hey, we like rates. And let it come close to it, and they, they have to backpedal yet again. Well, in a weird sort of way, <laughs> is there anything wrong with that in the sense that uh, if you don't see a bubble developing in the markets and the economy could use some stimulus without generating inflation, even if it's, it's, like, the old, it's like the question I put to an economist yesterday, is it okay to be right for the wrong reasons? Mm -hmm. Well, of course you don't see anything when you're blindfolded. I mean, the, the, what, the, the central bank sets the price of the risk-free asset. If the central bank doesn't know what it's doing, the market doesn't know what it's doing. Um, the Fed ought not to read tea leaves, but give a, yeah. give a path where it's going to be, and it's not playing that game. Instead, it, it's saying, well, if everything behaves, we get yeah. away with raising rates because we want to get away from zero. That is not leadership, and that's what the market <clears throat> leads. If you want to price assets, you need to have a 
benchmark, and the Fed is not providing that benchmark. Axel, with great respect, you by prospectus have given to your shareholders what you've described and what they want, which is hard currency and the worries of the system, and some would say maybe a more Austrian feel. Fine. What I, what I want to know is can you do the same daily analysis now that you could when you were killing it weak dollar a number of years ago? Or is the, the just as one example, the rate market so distorted that you can't do the same theory you've always worked with? Yeah, no, the, the world has certainly changed. And and so one of the things that we said throughout the crisis is that uh, because um, asset prices don't fl- reflect fundamentals, instead they, they reflect what the next move of policymakers might be. And one thing we had said at some point is that, well, then one good thing about policymakers is that they're predictable. And and, and so that that has changed things. And and, and yes, and, and by the way, we, what a lot of the things we do these days, um, you refer to our hard currency strategy, we do a lot in the short long short space. And the key emphasis here, is uh, what we, we look at at changing risk sentiment, how fear is developing in different markets. And we think that's really where, where there's a lot of value that one can create these days. But to the kind of the traditional Austrian analysis, yes, we, we do it. And it, the place it works is Japan, right? I mean, Japan, we've been right. Um, we, we, we were right. long the yen for a while, and we dropped at the beginning of right. the month um, because with two-thirds majority, it goes the other direction. So with Japan, it still works, but it doesn't work everywhere. That's right. Axel Mark from Mercury investments. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.